you don't have to speak up about every single thing. And I think it can be very unethical actually to do so because we're pushing each other to speak about things really prematurely a lot of the time when we don't even have near enough information. So I think really understanding that it is unethical to be so reactionary can be very helpful, whether it's to you, the individual, or to other people to just hear that because we do get to take the time to actually respond. We do get to say, actually, I'm going to be doing this work offline. I don't need to do that performance of showing all of my followers or showing everyone that's around that this is what I've done. Because the reality is for a lot of people, they truly believe that just simply sharing something is enough. And yes, that can be true in terms of raising awareness, which is really important. And it's a very big part of how we relate to each other and engage on social media. But a lot of the time, it's not really it's not really, really changing anything out there in the real world. It's not. But I think we've started to believe that if something is shared enough times and you're, you know, reacting at the same pace that everyone is and you're adding your input, that that means something has changed. No, no. So I think just understanding that just on that very objective level can be very, very important. I am Holly Whitaker. And I'm Emily McDowell. And this is Quitted, a podcast about quitting. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Do you watch that? I bit my tongue the entire time. Um, hi. Hi. How's it going? Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I always am the one that talks first in the intro, and so I just wanted to to not. Oh, I was just like, <laughs> I was like, kind of waiting for you to talk first because I know generally talk first because you're good at it at talking um, first. Well, yeah, you're good at talking very first. I am. I'm better at responding than mm. I am at like generating. Um, <laughs> I was about to say mouth counter, content, which is counter which content? is why I'm which is why <laughs> would you say mouth I'm content? Not, I did, which is why I'm not the right person to talk first. <laughs> All right, cool. I'll do it. Um, twist my arm. Uh, cool. So we have two things to talk about real quick in this intro. Like one is that my cat's not talking to me. Very important cat lady stuff. You went away. Yeah, I almost wanted. I looked at other kittens this morning <gasps> that are up for adoption in my area because she's not talking to you. You had to teach her a lesson. You were like, <laughs> <laughs> and I found this kitten named Popeye. It's missing an oh. eye. I know. So fucking want it. Um, I didn't mean to like actually want a cat. I was just like, all right, well. You know, I'm tired. Of, I'm tired of her punishing silent treatments. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying these words together. Um, <laughs> when I when I leave town and I come back, it's actually it feels like it's such a specific thing when your animal like she has no idea what I went through to make sure she could stay in her home this time and have people here taking care of her so she you know wasn't boarded and and still she's mad at me and. Again, I hear myself. Did you tell her all that stuff? Yeah, I've had, I've told her. Yeah. <laughs> I need, I really need to fucking like live closer to people. I the mean, the bottom line of this conversation is <laughs> Holly's going to move back to California. Oh my God. It can't come fast enough. Um, but you, you were know, saying they do, they do this, right? Like I have had 
multiple cats in my life I'm as a cat person. This is shocking. I know, right? <laughs> it's also, in addition to being beloved by LARPer men who wear capes and, mm-hmm. you know, go to Ren Fair, I've also had many cats. And I have had this experience where <laughs> I've had some cats that, like, will be actively angry. Like, we had a cat in college who would poop on the floor whenever he was mad and he would make it like very known like you do these things I poop on the floor that's just how it works you know that's aggressive it was very aggressive and he was my roommate's cat and I had Stanley for 17 years and Stanley would absolutely silent treatment me whenever I traveled Mm. I would I would come back and it would take him like and he was like my guy he was like my other half like my buddy and um still the longest relationship I've ever had. And he would, and he would really pout. Like he would really punish me. He would really be like, you know, you left me alone, bitch. I get it. It's real. She hasn't come near me since I got back. So yeah. Anyway, but I, Oh God, I really want this cat pop. I know. And then the other thing we were going to talk about is I think just kind of like, you know, this episode is with Africa Brooke and you and I both, fundamentally shifted the way that we use social media. I mean, to the detriment of the show and promoting mm-hmm. the show, we've really backed off from using social media. I did a count yesterday because I wrote a post about it this week on my sub stack that you can access at, um, I don't even know the fucking address, just Google recovering Hollywood occur. Um, please sign up for my sub stack. Anyway, um, but I wrote about this and I said something about, I, I counted how many posts that I've done since the start of the pandemic. And it was only about 100. And then I have, I think, 2,200 posts up, which means that I have done, you know, and I didn't really start Instagramming until like 2015, like hardcore Instagramming. So it's interesting because it's a big drop for me. I have, I hardly ever use Instagram anymore. And it's really hard for me to use it. And I do it still because I'm not in a place where I can drive forward a successful career without using social media. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and it costs me if I don't use it. And so I'm still there. But the one thing I have done, and I think like, you know, this, this is a couple weeks post, like, you know, a lot of people jumping in on a conversation without taking time to really think about it. That was so obvious. And I think one of the gifts of that is that I have really tried to de- activate the part of me that thinks I'm supposed to like chime in every single time something happens in the world on every single topic and like have like something thoughtful and will research to share about it. And I think that one of the things that's really sweet, like the, there's a lot of cost to not using Instagram regularly or social media regularly if you have a you know type of career that depends on you sharing your work independently but also it has been like such a blessing to not feel that need to always be on and always be commenting and it's almost like worth the you know the financial trade off mm-hmm. i don't know i mean you hardly ever post either too i hardly know? ever post and i have been in the position where I make a salary at my job. Mm. And so that's a different, that's a different position, right? Where Mm -hmm. I was using Instagram as my personal self 
for a couple of years. As your personal self versus well, I, I was as your I was originally the brand, right? Like yeah. the brand account, the M and Friends account was originally Emily McDowell underscore, and it was me. Mm-hmm. And then in 2018, 2019, I stopped posting to that account, and that account was taken over by our marketing team, and I started Emily on Life, which is my own account, and for a while was posting there pretty regularly. And I was posting a lot of thoughts and my writing as illustrated images, which is kind of the thing that I do. And people were sharing it all over the place. And it was, you know, sort of the desired effect was growing the account, right? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, like, what am I doing? I realized that so many of the people that were following me were people who were just trying to use that account for their own businesses, like people who were coaches and therapists and others who wanted to just use what I was writing to promote their own services, which is okay. Like I'm not like fundamentally opposed to that, Mm. but it also was like, this is weird. Like I'm doing work for free. I'm not sure who I'm doing this free work, (laughs) right? Like I'm doing this work and then I'm not really benefiting from this work because I don't have anything to like sell anybody or, you know, like I don't have any, I don't have anywhere to drive anybody. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm just putting it out there. And then it's becoming essentially used as recruiting tools for other people's work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here, you know? And then, so that was happening. And I was like, I want to, step back and say, why am I doing this? And and what is this serving? Yeah. And then the pandemic hit sort of concurrently with that. And I felt a lot of pressure at the beginning of the pandemic, whether it was externally imposed or more internally imposed that I was sort of projecting onto the world of, I'm supposed to be a leader. I'm supposed to have things to say about this. I'm supposed Ugh, to right. have a voice about this. I'm supposed and to I, be a leader. I'm supposed and I to didn't. be the one that like, I'm supposed to be the, right, like the flight attendant, right? Like that's helping to calm Yes, down. I'm supposed to be the flight attendant and I the am the passenger in 34G like screaming and yeah. everyone's like, shut up. You know, like <laughs> I am, I was useless in that scenario or I felt useless. I felt like I don't have, I don't have anything. I am really focused on you know, putting on my own oxygen mask to continue this flight metaphor. Um, And I don't know what to say. And I don't want to just say stuff to say it. Because the other thing was that I, what I was noticing and feeling in myself was like what you were talking about is just this impulse to start to be commenting on everything and to be having an opinion to like, to be, you know, to be a sort of one person news service, right? Like a a one person op-ed department. And that's not (laughs) That that was also not – that didn't feel good. Well, and we talked about this during the Liz Gilbert episode, the first one, because that was exactly one of, like, the moments where I was like, uh, why am – like, the amount of pressure that I felt to come in calm and have all of these wise things to say about a completely unprecedented situation that no one – fully understood nor could give guidance through. Mm -hmm. And I looked to a lot of people who were taking that position and like, great for them. Like, thank fucking God, because those things absolutely helped me. But I could not complete that job. You know, I could not do that work. And I hated myself for not like it was very I remember it so clear because I was sitting there and I felt like I was failing because I 
because I couldn't step up, you know, like Mm -hmm. I couldn't step up. I couldn't use it as a way to promote my work. I couldn't use it as a way to like tell us, you know, like it felt like who the fuck am I right now to like say anything to anybody and pretend I have some kind of wisdom to Mm -hmm. offer. Mm -hmm. I have none. And so I think that was a, very big turning point for me in terms of it. And then when George Floyd was murdered, that also really cut it for me because I think that there was so much space to be made, right? And so much, so much I didn't need to have an opinion on. People did not need to hear from me. Mm -hmm. And then leaving my job and being so fucked up for so long, So, like, those things combined all just really created, thank God, a really different – I developed a very different relationship between – or with social media. And I think that it doesn't feel healthy still. Mm -hmm. And what doesn't feel healthy about it is that I still have to use this thing. And I do enjoy doing it. You know, I enjoy sharing something if it's well thought out. But I'm just never going to use – social media the same way again. I'm never going to pump out content on social media, you know, four times a week, spend, what, 10 hours doing that and, you know, like manage my comment section and make, you know, and like uh, look at, you know, and like it's just I am done. And I think – Well, and I think the platforms have also made it really clear that like you – if you built a house here, you built it on quicksand. I know. Like, you know, know, that this isn't – that yeah. that they don't make gonna, you want to use it. Yeah, that's no, right. they don't. And no. and also they make you not want to use it, which is fucking so wild to me, right? It is wild. And like for us, like we're both writers, right? And so I'm not going to do reels. I'm not going to make movies. No. I'm not going to. That's not my. That's not the kind of content <laughs> no. I make. And that's not no. what I want to do with my time. And that's not actually what I want to watch either. Like no. And so it just every time I open Instagram, I end up scrolling through for five minutes and actually getting bored because I'm just seeing reels and I don't want to watch reels. And so I close it, which is ultimately, I think, had a a net positive effect on my life. Yes. But then, you know, I'm also looking towards the future and I'm looking towards like, what if I do at some point want to do something different? Or what if I want to, you know, offer different things? And how do I, how do I reach people? And so I started a newsletter, which I will say you can sign up for on emilyonlife.com as a way to try to get to well, try to, build to like something that you own and that can't be yeah. taken away from you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really I think it's an interesting t- I think like it's an interesting time to be alive, right? And I think that I'm really grateful honestly for having such a conflicting relationship with social media. I think all of us, you know, like we have businesses tied to it or you know our incomes are tied to it or whatever, but and we have a, we also have relatively large followings. And, you know, relative, you know, like, you know, ethlist fame or whatever, like on Instagram, but like (laughs) enough to like get attention and not always nice attention. But I think I guess what I'm saying is we have exceptional, somewhat exceptional relationships to social media. But at the same time, all of us have a relationship to social media and it doesn't matter if you're you or me and, you know, we have 100,000 followers or if you have 300 followers, I have never not been fucked up using social media. Mm-hmm. And I, no matter what my use was for it, and I feel like 
I am really grateful for having these really like these, they feel frivolous, right? It feels frivolous to like be upset about, you know, shitty comments or your attention getting sucked into it or whatever, but it's not frivolous and it, it's how we spend our lives. And this is a really big part of our lives. And I think that I, I I'm grateful that I have been challenged and that it's felt so shitty because I've had to make really hard choices with it. Yeah. And behavior change doesn't just come in a vacuum, right? Like yeah. I'm grateful for my shifting relationship with it because it's just had me reevaluate what's actually important and how I want to be spending my time and how I want to feel and whether I want to be in a perpetual state of urgency, which the answer is no. But yeah. that's really what that's the tenor of what social media brings to me at least. And yeah. um, I don't love that. I fucking hate it. So moving into what this episode is about. So we had Africa Brooke on. She's she's on this week and she's on next. And just a tiny bit of a setup here, but there's plenty of content and conversation with Africa. So I won't give a lot of it away, but Africa and I have known each other for a long time in our relatively short, sober lives. And I have watched Africa talk about self-sabotage for years. And then we get into this in this episode. But during Uprising in 2020, Africa spoke to a largely white, um, sober influencer audience or sobriety community on social media, on Instagram specifically. And we get into in this episode, you know, kind of how Africa moves from talking about self-sabotage into talking about self-censorship, which is what her platform is now and what where she spends most of her time really encouraging, thought-provoking, difficult, uncomfortable conversations about really important things like why we cannot have the conversations we need to have with each other at this point in time, why we are so divided um, so, so, you know, entitled or so you know, quick to anger and on the internet. And I, I think what Emily and I were just talking about is not exactly what we're talking about with Africa, but it has a lot to do with it because I think there's also just, uh, there's a lot that's not fun anymore. And there's a lot that's like really toxic about the way that people treat each other online or the way that we communicate when, when there's no personalization, when you're never going to have to see that person, when it's through a computer. And this first part of the conversation, we're really focusing on how Africa developed into her current platform. She wrote an article, Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness, uh, about a year, well, probably like a year and a half ago that's had 5 million views. Um, she has a podcast called Beyond the Self um, that I think is fantastic. And what I have loved so much about following her is that I don't agree with everything that she says or she thinks. And this doesn't count us out. Like this doesn't make us adversaries. This makes us humans that are able to have conversations where we respect, I think, the the dynamic individuality of each of us and how we, you know, pull together our, our worldviews and world beliefs. So um, I don't know, Emily, if you have anything to, to add to that. I mean, I feel like that was pretty comprehensive. Yeah. So this has been long. So I'm just going to take us into the episode by reminding everybody that 
We are a self-produced podcast. We don't have advertising dollars. We don't have a network. We produce this ourselves with the very generous help of our patrons in our Patreon community. And if you would like to support us that way, you can go to patreon.com forward slash quitted um, to become a patron. And the other way that you can support this podcast that's really meaningful is to rate it and review it. That really helps with the visibility and really makes a difference. Yeah. And one last thing I'll say is that we split this into two episodes. This one ends somewhat abruptly. You can catch the second half of this the following week. We pick right back up. Here's Africa. Okay. Well, welcome, Africa Brooke. First of all, I think we all want to know what tea you're drinking right now. (laughs) I am drinking black tea. This is the fourth rebrew. And what that means is that I started drinking this particular leaf three days ago. But once you finish one brew, you can dry it and then you can have it over and over again until it doesn't have the taste. And then after that, you can cook with the leaves. So I'm drinking black tea, the fourth rebrew. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Africa has a podcast called Beyond the Self, and this is the context for the tea. So one of the things I love about your podcast, in addition to your voice, which is basically like oh you my could God, read, like you could read yeah. the manual to my blender and I would listen to you. So, so coming. You are always drinking tea and you're always talking about the tea and it makes me want to drink tea. And like, I don't even like tea. So you're influencing, really? you're a tea influencer. Um, <laughs> so yes. I love it. I love it. I think it's, I mean, you, it's also, you've been doing it for a while. Like you've done that on your Instagram videos for a long time too, which is just, yeah, it's lovely. So Africa is here with us today talking about quitting and we have a lot of questions for you and are really curious to hear you talk about some things that I think, I mean, things that you've helped me quit Um, behaviors Mm. that you've really helped me with. But I want to start by basically resolving the questions that I have knowing you. So I've known you and your work since, I think since 2016. When did you start? You started it in like 2016 or 2000. As soon as you were on the internet, I feel like you came into our sphere, probably because you were friends with Lori McAllister. Right, right. But actually, and I was thinking about this just before I came into the room, that this is actually sort of a full circle moment for me because the final time that I decided that I was going to give this fucking sobriety thing another try if I have to, (laughs) one of the first things that I came across that really solidified that decision alongside many other things was hip sobriety. So that was Mm. your blog, which I actually came across in 2015, but I didn't get sober until November 2016. And it was the first anything that I had seen, especially online, that did not make me feel ashamed. It made me feel Mm. relief. It made me feel liberated. It made me feel like, oh my goodness, there is a way to do this without having to be, without having to call myself an addict, without having to be in the AA rooms and without having to kind of make it this underground shameful thing. And so I came across you very early on in my journey, right in the beginning. And I remember actually on the very first post that I have, which is still on there, I was asking who who else is sort of talking about this. And someone just listed you and a few other people. And then I remember you left me a comment, which is still on there if you go back to it. So this is nearly six years ago now. And you were just welcoming me onto this path. You were telling me that I can do it, that I can message you anytime. And... Uh. 
it's so fucking mad that now six years on I'm here speaking with you in this way so I've yeah we've been in each other's lives for maybe longer than than we both realized Realized, yeah I I forgot about that I used to tell people to message me huh (laughs) (laughs) don't do that anymore and now <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, That's I think like, hilarious. I know, isn't it really funny? But, and you and I, we almost like Laura and our podcast blew up. You were like our next guest right before she and I like stopped right. recording that podcast. Yes. So this has also been long overdue. Um, okay. So you are somebody that I have learned from over the ages. And I think one of the causes that you just recently talked about on your podcast, you've talked a lot about female genital mutilation yes. or uh, circumcision. You have talked a lot about sexual health and mm-hmm. sex positiveness and sex. And Emily and I were just talking about this because you you have talked about self-sabotage for a really long time. That's yeah. been part of your work before you started talking about self-censorship. Yes. Yes. But one of the things that I really am curious about is June 2020, you Mm -hmm. did an Instagram live and you were talking about the whiteness of the sobriety community. And this was right after George Floyd's murder. And this was also, we never talked about that within this like idea of recovery community. I mean, there were like brown and black accounts, like there was like more representation that was happening, but we were not talking about the whiteness of recovery spaces and who was represented. And and also like, we don't talk about race within these spaces. And I had never heard you say that before. It was lovely to hear. And I think that, you know, it's in this time where, you know, as a white person, I'm like tripping over myself trying to do all the right things. And I think I sent you really awkward uh, DMs because I was like, I'm so sorry. You know, like all of a sudden it really changed this dynamic that you and I had, I felt, because I was like apologizing to you for coming into your DMs, even though like, you know, like we've known each other for years and stuff. And I think that, you know, I, I didn't follow a ton of your Instagram stories. I watched that one and a couple other ones. And then you wrote this essay about leaving the cult of wokeness which is just everyone, I believe, needs to read that essay. It is extremely well thought out. It's clearly like, oh, you know, your heart on the page. And I think for me, there's the you that's coming in and saying rightly to the recovery community, like you are just laughing, like, where have you fucking been, you know? And it's nice that you all want to put black squares up now. And, And then also... One of the things that I saw that was really interesting was that some of the white influencers that hadn't spoken up after George Floyd's death really flocked to your work at that mm. point. And I, you know, like the worst part of me is just thinking like, here's a black woman that's validating your like ability to not talk about racism. So there's a lot that's built into what I just said. But what I think I really want to get to is like, can you take us like just take your time taking us through Because that's a big change, right? Like that's a really big change. You quit a lot of things, right? Yeah. (laughs) Publicly. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I I was not aware of your work until that essay came out. So I didn't have the context that Holly had of kind of knowing you before and knowing where you were focused or, you know, seeing a shift. And so I only became aware of your work post-shift. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is, um, I think, really important actually because – even Holly, that example that you've given of the live that I did in June, I, I don't even fucking remember doing that. So you telling me that is, is new. Info. I'm like, oh, <laughs> it was really oh, good. that's cool. I 
You were like, I'm going to make some tea and let's talk of about course, where have you all been? Speak up. and <laughs> Right. Okay. So let me, let me take you back. Let me take you back. I would say that for me, just to give even more context of my story and how that transition happened for me, sort of sharing my subjective experience in sobriety and then looking at it in a more objective way, wanting to find out my own behavioral patterns coming across the concept of self-sabotage, I would say around 2017, and just really finding something, a, a piece of the conversation that I thought was really missing from a lot of uh, the conversations that were being had around sobriety or just human behavior in general. So by the time 2017 came, I think because I was one of the very few black people, black women, especially young black women within the sobriety space that was really having these conversations, I would always find myself being the only one at the panel or the only one at the seminar or the only one at this. There weren't really many people to, uh, for lack of a better term, to pick from, if you will. I just mm. always found myself kind of being that person that was always there. And at some point in time, it just made me start to wonder I couldn't possibly be the only black sober person within <laughs> within the sobriety community, if you will. But again, these were just workings in my own mind. It wasn't really anything that I thought so deeply about, but I just started to see more and more. And it didn't matter if I was doing a virtual event online and it's based in the US or it's happening here in the UK. I just never saw anyone else. I think there was... Actually, at the time there was, and still is, Sherry, Sherry Hampton, who you might oh, know. Sherry Hampton, yeah, yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. I would say there was maybe her and Jocelyn, one other person. So I think I just started asking myself internally those questions. Why, why do I seem to be the only person that is brought when maybe there, there's a need for diversifying a panel or diversifying an event or seminar or anything like that. And again, these were just internal things that I didn't really think much of until everything came to the surface in 2020, which is what led me to then do that live that I did. But also it's interesting because there were a lot of conflicting things that were happening internally. I felt as though I needed to concentrate on that message specifically because of what was happening in 2020, because of how charged everything was, because of, you know, things that were coming to the surface, the injustice, the, you know, the experiences, minor and major experiences that people have had, interactions people have had with other white people, whether it's in personal or professional relationships. So I felt that because of the direction the conversation was going, and there's no other way of saying this, but I felt as though I had to look for fault because the truth is me observing those moments where I was the only black person on a panel or anything like that. There were instances where I would speak to the organizers and I would speak to whoever's putting it together. And there could also be that reality of they just don't know who to reach out to. There aren't many people within the sobriety space who they can actually reach out to, especially if it's here in the UK, for example, where when you look at many black communities and Asian communities, most happen to be religious. So that means, and I experienced the same thing as well, that means church is prescribed for most people. The first point of call is not really to go to AA or to go to rehab or to go to the internet. So that means there aren't that many people that are being public about their story, which means that if people are putting together something, there's just not going to be that many people. So over time, I did start to realize that some of these things are not just because 
it's racism. There are actual yeah. answers as to why there's a lack of certain people being represented. And there are people that genuinely want to change that. So I knew all of those things. I was able to hold the multiple truths of, okay, I don't see myself represented. I don't see many people like me, but I also have to be aware of the environment that I'm in and to understand that most people who are like me probably would not come forward in the way that I do. But I felt that by the time 2020 came, I had to look for that problem. That's that's just how I could never have consciously mm-hmm. said that, but I felt as if the way the conversation was going is that you have to be calling someone out. That's just mm-hmm. what it was. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that live that I did was me unconsciously participating in that behavior where I suddenly, because of the deep emotion, the justified emotion that I felt and, you know, the collective anger and solidarity that I felt, I also felt like I had to look at all my previous interactions and experiences with white people and find something that I had to take issue with and speak about it. And shortly after that, shortly after doing that live, and maybe sharing a few other posts in the same vein. Why is no one speaking about this? Why is no one sharing about this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which I now realize, and I'm sure we'll speak about this, it's a very, I think that's very entitled. I think that's very entitled on on my part anyway, because I was just thinking about what I needed in that moment, how I wanted people to react in that moment, how I wanted people all over the world, regardless of where they were, as long as they were on the platform of Instagram that I was using, I wanted them to be aware of all of it and to speak in a way that would make me feel like they've done something, right? Mm -hmm. And I can only see that now. But after that live and after the responses that I started getting from people, when I would have white women particularly apologizing in my DMs and always starting with something along the lines of as a white woman. I always called this a script. It started to feel really uncomfortable and bizarre as a white woman, et cetera, et cetera, as a white woman who is privileged, et cetera, et cetera. Then I started to think, what if I'm more privileged than this person? Does this mean by default that I'm underprivileged? Does this mean, I just started to ask all of these things that I had Mm -hmm. never asked myself before. And then I realized, oh my goodness, Africa, for the past at least three years, you've just been regurgitating language that you thought you needed to. You've been reacting in ways that you thought you needed to react in order to be part of the group, whatever the group might be. So I think that live that I did was a combination of that. It was also a combination of me signaling my own goodness. It was also a combination of me wanting to collectively participate in what was happening in, in the call outs and then, you know, taking a stand for something, but it was very dishonest. That's the reality. It was Mm. very dishonest. If I really wanted to do something effective and impactful, I would have reached out privately to the people that I've worked with in the sobriety community who are the most wonderful people, people that have always lifted me up from day one, people that have thought of me from panel to panel to event to event, from me not having any following at all and me being the Africa brook that people might know now. I, I could, I had that option, but I didn't choose that option. Shortly after that video, I just started to realize that I had been trapped in, in the performance you know? And then I started to look back at my previous experiences. I started to think of when I started the Cherry Revolution, which was my sexual wellness company, 
And Holly, you know, when I was listening to your episode on quitting Tempest, I actually had to pause it quite a few times and just take a breath because I could resonate with so much of what what you were sharing. Of course, the details are different, but I could really resonate with that. When I started Cherry Revolution, which quickly became quite successful as a brand, it immediately got placed in the category of feminism which I didn't at the time take much issue with, but I never said it was a feminist brand. Maybe it's because I'm a bold woman and I had body hair at the time and I was talking about my pussy, talking about this. It was just labeled as feminism. And I didn't have Mm -hmm. an issue with that at all because my values very much align with feminism. But it also meant that it started to quickly get labeled as social justice, as activism, as all the other things that come with it. And... I got very trapped in that very quickly, very quickly, because there's a certain way of being, and I am all for social justice. I'm all very serious about activism, and which is why I speak as loudly as I do, actually, because I think it's really important to step out of performance and to really acknowledge the people who are making true change. But I realized that I then got trapped in all of those labels of activists, of social justice, being a black woman, women of color, BIPOC, BAME, et cetera, all of these things which come with almost um, pre-decided values and ways of being and language as well that you're supposed to use and questions you're not supposed to ask and how you're supposed to feel about men. This is how you feel about white people. This is how you feel about people that are privileged. And again, consciously, I could have never told you that this is what I was, it it was all just happening in real time and things just start to happen and you don't question certain things. And over time, especially when I would do interviews and I I would get asked questions like, um, as a black woman, how do you, et cetera, et cetera. So the question has already been, as a black woman in the sexual wellness space, as a black woman in sobriety. So the question has already been positioned in a way where I have to now answer this question, not just as a human being or an entrepreneur or a writer or Mm. a speaker. Now I have to answer it as a black woman and there has to be some kind of Mm. grievance along with it. So just all Mm -hmm. of these things that started happening. And speaking on behalf of black women, right? So that's what I'm also thinking too. Like that you're the, you're the voice that represents this like homogenous group of people that all think the same. Exactly. And even if I connect that to the life that you're talking about at Holly, it's the same thing, having that feeling that you're supposed to speak up uh, and, and for everyone at this moment in time. So just after that live, I quickly took it down because I suddenly was just snapped out of this trance of performance. And I realized that this is what has been making me sick for the past few years. Cause I, I used to get chronic migraines quite a lot. And I realized that even though I consider myself to be a really confident and outspoken person, I've been heavily censoring myself, but it's not a typical kind of self-censorship. It's one where you still on an outward level, you still just appear like yourself, but you're not even using your own language. You're not even using your own words. You're agreeing with things that you don't actually agree with. You're parroting usually social justice, academic jargon that you don't actually know what it means. So in the real world, if someone asks you a simple follow-up question, you don't know how to handle that because you've Mm. been in echo chambers where no one asks questions. Everyone thinks exactly like you do. So all of these realizations, I just started writing them, whether in notes or voice noting to myself. And then eventually, by the end of that year, I started writing what I just thought was going to be just a little 
rant to my newsletter of 2000 people. I always fucking forget about this newsletter. I was like, let me give them something. It's the end of the year. Let me just share these thoughts that I have. But then I was just sitting there on my couch and then just those 4,000 words just poured out of me. And then I sent it. And I was like, actually, instead of just keeping it to my newsletter where I know it's confined and it's private, let me just share it onto my Instagram. And then it just, Mm -hmm. I mean, And then a year on, now it's been read by over 5 million people. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it it blows my mind, but also it doesn't because I know it's the words that people desperately need, especially those that are trying their fucking best. Those that are not using it as a permission slip to just not give a shit about any of these things. That that couldn't be further from the truth. This is resonating with people that finally have language for that conflict they've been feeling for the past few years, but they don't know what it is. So that's kind of, yeah, Mm -hmm. still the short version of how it led up to that. But that's kind of the how I can paint the picture so far. I thought it was so interesting in that piece that you talk about how self-censorship breeds resentment, inner internal resentment, because I hadn't thought of it that way. I was aware of it in myself in terms of the fear, right? And in terms of the fear of saying the wrong thing. And what if I say the wrong thing accidentally? What if I don't do this right? What if I'm um, misunderstood? All of that. But then when you said that it breeds resentment, that also hit for me in a way that I had not um, thought of myself. Right. The thing that I keep on thinking about that I know I've experienced myself is, and and I think like Haley Nauman, Nauman, I can never say it right, Nauman, um, wrote about this recently in her newsletter and talked about the more like separate you are from what people think, like people are happier if they think they're a piece of shit and everyone thinks they're a piece of shit because those things match up, right? And mm. this idea of like the incongruence between what people what people think of you and how you actually feel, like the public self versus yes. the private self, like the the more those are disconnected, the more fucked up that we feel. Right. And I think when you're t- when you were just talking about that. I mean, the thing for me is like what I have found is I got into doing what I'm doing, speaking at all because of integrity, right? Like because of this like sobriety for me has been this path of like knowing what I can't do to myself anymore that's really harmful. And I wonder if you can just talk about that because I do know there, there have been times where I know I'm just... I'm just saying what I need to say because that's what I'm expected to say mm-hmm. and how how much that hurts. And I know that it hurts because of of other things that I've done that are really similar yeah. to that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, in terms of the self-censorship breeding resentment, to me, how it was actually very organic for me to transition into speaking so much about self-censorship is because I know it very well just from my own relationship with alcohol. And when I think back to my own roots of self-censoring, my dad was a, he was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic back in Zimbabwe when we still lived there. And I learned to self-censor at a very young age because I had to, because he could get very violent. He Mm -hmm. could get extremely violent. If you say the wrong thing, if you just express the wrong thing, if you ask it in the wrong way, 
or even just body language. If he feels that you're being disrespectful in any kind of way, we would get physically hit or he would hit my mum as well. So I actually learned to self-censor from a very, very, very young age because it was a form of self-protection, which is what self-censorship ultimately is. But the thing is something that is a form of self-protection to begin with, depending on how long you carry it through your life, it quickly becomes self-sabotage, right? So the two for me have always been interlinked. In the beginning of my journey, even in understanding self-sabotage, I was also indirectly addressing self-censorship because there were also things in my own family in relation to alcohol and my drinking and the things that were happening around that, that I felt I couldn't say, that I felt I couldn't ask and vice versa because of religion in our home. Even though my family could see the results of my drinking and the things that were happening because of the Bible, because of certain scripture, because of certain ways of being, we just don't ask questions. We just don't have that conversation because again, you're prescribed God and you're prescribed church. That's the only place in which you can speak to. And that created a lot of resentment for me a lot of resentment because something, some very important things are going unaddressed and they are going to have to be channeled in some kind of way. And self-destruction was usually the way that that ended up happening. This is also why I'm very fierce in my message in helping people to really understand its workings, to really understand how sinister it is because you have people that really care about social justice. Just one example, you have people that really care about social justice, but once that individual who truly, truly cares and wants to do their best to make some kind of change, some kind of uh, contribution, if they feel as though they can't even ask a question, if they feel that at every turn they are going to be shamed for their race, for their sex, for their gender, for whatever the details might be, if they feel that they can't even ask a question, they are going to be so disempowered and that disempowerment will turn into resentment. And it's going to mean that at some point that person is going to give up. So a big issue that you have and that I see happening right now, whether I'm working with clients or I speak to people in my audience, is that people are giving up. They're just done. People are done. People are sick of being called a bigot because they just have a question. Mm -hmm. People are tired of being called a white supremacist or a this and a that just because they're pointing out maybe some kind of contradiction or they have a question or they want to know how they can make a change because maybe they're hearing different things from different, let's say, people of color because, yeah, we don't all think the same. So they don't quite know which one to, okay, but this person said this and this person... People are just tired. And when people are tired, they they just give up. They tap out. And we don't need people tapping out. We really don't need that. So that's a that's a really important piece of it. And I also think in terms of I always come back to sobriety being my own framework for dealing with all of the things that I've had to deal with now, whether it's understanding that I am censoring myself, that I'm saying things that I think I need to say because they will be accepted. It's the exact same shit. Like when I was drinking, doing it because I think that's going to be a way for me to belong for a way for me to feel desirable enough for this man to want to fuck me or for it's the same kind of thing, just in a different way. So I always really come back to my sobriety because I think it's actually given me a really robust framework to work with when I experience things like this in life. And I wonder if it's the same for you as well, Holly, when you find yourself in just situations that are so far removed from alcohol or anything like that, but you already have that inbuilt 
framework from somewhere. And maybe you do as well, Emily. I don't fuck, I don't fucking do that to myself. I mean, that's the whole point of it, right? Like, and I think like that, that's kind of what I was trying to deal with, especially because I hadn't heard the resentment thing before. Right. When I think of resentment, resentment is I am choosing to satisfy someone else's ideas or needs Mm -hmm. before really checking in with myself. And when, like, I I wrote about it in my book because I've, I've had to do it in really weird ways. Like, I wrote about how my mom is disabled and I had, like, not taken care of myself for a period of time. And I, chose to put her on a bus and how much it like fucking killed me. But it, it killed me less than being at the end of my ability and not actually like tapping into how I felt and what I needed. And I think that when resentment is like doing the polite thing or doing the thing that makes me seem like a good person versus doing the thing that like actually feels good to me. And and I feel like when I'm operating from that place of like, this is in alignment with my beliefs and what I want to do and how I want to spend my time and what I actually like when I'm there, that feels really good. Even it, it like hard decisions are not hard because I mean, they are, they're always hard, right? Like there's always someone to disappoint or someone that will misunderstand you. But I think that I can't do that anymore. Yeah. I, I don't I don't have the ability to override that part of me. I will pay for it. Mm-hmm. So yes, it does actually extend to when I'm doing something I don't agree with, just for the sake of making other people like me or be comfortable around me, I kind of like just oh, I don't know. Da- like it does it it's it fucks me up and it's yeah. dangerous, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I always refer to it as crossing your own boundaries because that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, that's what it feels like yeah. to me when I'm intentionally crossing my own boundaries, really making that decision that you know what, in this moment, I know that I really don't agree with this, and I know that this is so far removed from my values, but I'm going to do it anyway. And when I was able to just even give myself that kind of language. It means that every single time where I have to make a decision, where I have that opportunity to kind of step out of integrity, once I think of it as crossing my own boundaries, it's so visceral to me that I I refuse to do it. That's why I talk so much about discomfort, because I think once we accept that discomfort is something we're going to inevitably feel when we choose to be in integrity. Cause it sounds amazing to be like, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm in integrity. Integrity is my value, but it's not that comfortable <laughs> when you have it's to not. exercise it. Yeah. Right. So what do you say to people? I mean, how did you, there are so many people I think who are caught in a place where, and I have been here too, where saying I care about social justice is, an, is a good example, right? Like this is something that I care about. And this is something that I have spoken about you know, personally that I've spoken about online since, I mean, I remember posting Black Lives Matter stuff in 2015 my, as part of my brand, but the tenor of that conversation being completely different back then. There was not yeah. a like established sort of us versus, of course, there were the people that were like, all lives matter, shut up. But it was not a like, pile on sort of um, like mob mentality the way that it is now. And something that's happened over the last couple of years is because people care and because people feel really passionate and because on social media, 
it's a way for people to feel like we're doing something. Like mm. this is, we have a, a lot of us, I mean, all of us, right, to some degree feel helpless about the state of the world, disenfranchised, you know, people are angry. Yeah. And going onto social media and being mad at somebody is a place to put your anger. Mm. And I think it's a misplaced place to put anger. Um, you know, I've come to that understanding. But that's a thing that, you know, people are doing this, right? And so that there are so many people that care, that want to speak up and that speak up and are afraid. And, you know, like, how do you, how do you help people navigate that? Hmm. I don't think there's a one size fits all, but something that I always think about and something that I've been speaking about more recently is just emphasizing the point that you don't actually have to speak about every single thing. You really don't because there's a, there's a really dangerous in the truest sense idea, especially on social media where we are spending a lot of our time, especially in the past two years with everything that has happened in the pandemic. We do have to accept that our digital lives are, we hold them as sacred, whether we want to accept that or not, we do we do. So something that we have started to do is to treat ourselves as if we are machines almost, as if we're supposed to be able to hold all of the information that is happening in the world at the same time globally. And you have to care in the exact same way about every single thing. And you have to sort of treat yourself like you're a journalist, like you're a news station. So one of the first things that I say anyway, and I mean, it's really simple that you don't have to speak up about every single thing. And I think it can be very unethical actually to do so because we're pushing each other to speak about things really prematurely a lot of the time when we don't even have near enough information. So I think really understanding that it is unethical to be so reactionary can be very helpful, whether it's to you the individual or to other people to just hear that because we do get to take the time to actually respond. We do get to say, actually, I'm going to be doing this work offline. I don't need to do that performance of showing all of my followers or showing everyone that's around that this is what I've done. Because the reality is for a lot of people, they truly believe that just simply sharing something is enough. And yes, that can be true in terms of raising awareness, which is really important. And it's a very big part of how we relate to each other and engage on social media. But a lot of the time, it's not really, it's not really, really changing anything out there in the real world. It's not. But I think we've started to believe that if something is shared enough times and you're, you know, reacting at the same pace that everyone is and you're adding your input, that that means something has changed. No, mm, no. Right. So I think just understanding that just on that very objective level can be very, very important because we all give into the pressure at some point. We're given to the pressure of, oh, but everyone else is sharing this. I guess I need to kind of say something. I think there's a level of self-trust that we all need to have as individuals to just trust that actually my silence in this moment is really important because me adding to this conversation when, as I said, when I don't have enough information, when adding my opinion to this is probably not going to be very useful. And also not every single fight is yours because once you put something out there, you're going to have to defend mm -hmm. whatever you've just put out there. Mm -hmm. So I think really mm -hmm. allowing yourself that time to respond is so fucking important. 
And that can make you feel a little bit uncomfortable if everyone else externally is sharing. But if only we knew that most people are also sharing out of panic, most people are also sharing because everyone else is. And if I don't, that so there really needs to be a willingness to sit in that discomfort and to be able to respond instead of react. So again, I don't think it's one particular answer. I think there are a lot of moving parts there, but ultimately it's trusting yourself enough to say, actually, no. I I don't have to speak about this particular thing. I think it's so interesting because I feel like there used to be when you were like, you know, back in the day um, (laughs) at the start of Instagram, it felt like it was impactful to talk Mm -hmm. about really subversive or radical or just, you know, like things that you knew were going to piss people off. And Mm -hmm. I feel like there was a time and a place to... Like there was a time that I remember when it was important because it did actually challenge the status quo and it was very useful. I know for me, I have said many things that have gotten me, you know, hated over the years because of like the ability to use that tool Mm -hmm. as a way to provoke. But as you're saying this, I'm thinking like over the past few years, what's happened for me, it has turned from this is really exciting today. I am going to piss people off, you know, and because mm-hmm. I believe in what I'm saying yes. and I'm going to stand behind it and I'm going to fucking defend it. I'm using this as a tool. And what I have found, you know, like it's not actually changing something. It's not doing something with my voice. It's like adding into a course. And I think that at a certain point, what happens is that energy is really obvious. Like the thing behind me being like really, really like saying something that is going to be provoking and cause people to, you know, potentially change their minds is very different than posting the same thing that everyone else posted because that's what Mm -hmm. we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I, I think like that has been part of it as well, which is like, I'm not posting this with the same energy and fire that I would if I, if I, if this was something where I was taking a real risk, you know, and I was saying something that was controversial and right and something completely in line. And so what has happened is one, I don't feel it's helpful. And I think two, I mean, it is absolutely helpful. Like I want to say that I do believe absolutely in using our voices and the idea that our social media feeds is where we do it and we do it in the same way everyone else is doing it and we use the same scripts. And also like to me, what I have found is that I have become less and less likely to say anything at all about anything, you know, the 5 million things to talk about, you know, one, because I can't say everything about everything Two, because I want to be really selective in how I use my voice and three, because I think it's just like throwing a rock in a pond and it just sinks to the bottom Mm -hmm. and it's not allowing people to really be able to process. Like I'm adding to a collective confusion and noise. Yes. Same. And there's also something that happened for me where I realized, wait a minute, I am now contributing to this energy by trying to police what other people are sharing. And that was something that I never did before, meaning pre sort of last couple of years. Instead of just using my voice to state my own opinion and what I believed in and to share things that I believed in, I realized, you know, I shared somebody's post 
I think last summer that was, you know, a very well thought out, you know, sort of missive. It was from a white woman and it was like, hey, white women who are in the wellness community with big followings, you guys who are not talking about racism, who are never talking about race, like, come on, get with the program. You're part of the problem here. And I shared that. And then I thought about it. And I took it down a couple of hours later because I realized I don't think that this is my place to A, police what other people post online and B, you know, judge what they publicly care about or don't Mm -hmm. publicly care about. You know, this is not my business. And whether I personally think that they should be talking about it or not, like, is irrelevant. Like, who cares? And shaming somebody into talking about something is not how I want to use my position. Yeah. And you know what? You're saying something. I really admire you for saying that out loud because it's it's an experience that so many people had and are having. And I mean, hundreds of people share this with me every single week. And with, with what you're saying particularly, it's also something I experienced after that video in June where I was calling out the sobriety community and everything else that came after it. Again, for me, it was that entitlement. Who am I to demand? And I think I then turned this into words and shared them somewhere. But who am I to demand that people in all corners of the world, regardless of geographical uh, <laughs> geographical location, they care about something that is happening in the UK, in London, something that is happening in America at exactly at the same time. You know, I would see so many messages like, it's not business as usual, et cetera. And of course, I see people saying a lot of the time things like that. And I get it. I get it. And at the same time, this is said on a social, if we just look at it objectively, this is being said on a social media platform with 500 million daily users from all corners of the world. And you have all kinds of people in your audience who are not from the US. Someone might be from Kenya. Someone might be from Tanzania. Someone might be from South Africa. Someone might be from Malaysia. And just because you haven't seen them react to something that is happening in your country, you decide that they are a bad person. Like when you just start to think about it in that way, you know, because again, a a lot of people online also have small businesses. Maybe they have tiny accounts or big accounts for their small businesses. How many people are knocking at the door of uh, brick and mortar stores telling them that they need to speak about this now? So why do we then do that to each other? When I just started to think about things in that way, it made me realize how entitled I was. And I I had to realize, Africa, well, guess fucking what? You don't get to decide how other people use their voice. There are so many things that you are silent about. Mm -hmm. So many things that Mm -hmm. you are silent about that people wish you were speaking about. People maybe wish that every day you were posting about FGM, which is something that I care about so much but I don't talk about it on my Instagram a lot because I don't think it's my place to. There is so much that I don't know. I uplift different activists who talk about it much better than I could. And I contribute in the real world with the small grassroots organizations. And I'm not going to fucking post about it because I don't have to. But I had to realize there are so many things that I'm silent about. So who am I to say, oh, white women or brown women or these women should speak about this now. It's not business as usual. I mean... 
I get it, but I also think it's a very, um, it can be a very narrow way of thinking. And I've said this quite a few times, but I also think it's quite a, a very North American way of thinking because you don't really see many people from different continents kind of doing this when something happens in their country, which I find to be really interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, that the world stops when something happens in the U S <laughs> and no matter where you are, you better we fucking don't post like about that. it. It's <laughs> wild. I always love with my American friends about this, that I think they forget that, uh, <laughs> that we're not the, like, you know, the, the one country. country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have it all the time where people assume that I'm American, even though I, you can hear my accent. I always talk about London um, and they're like, they always talk as if I'm, I'm just American by default. So interesting. That's, that is really interesting. You probably have a large American following. I guess. do. Yeah. I mm. do. You've been listening to Quitted, a podcast about quitting, hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music is by Michael Blumenfeld. Our sound engineer is Adam Day. And our producer is Kathleen Kissich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our patron community at patreon.com forward slash quitted.